thank you. A little adjustment here. Now, some of you should, um, you should be aware that there is um, there's a handout for today um, that uh, we, we sent out that hopefully you have um, that was separate than the bulletin. And part of the reason for that is, technically speaking, um, we're not supposed to be printing stuff up and handing them out to you, okay? So be mindful of that. So have that ready for our time in the Word. Um, I do want to at least mention to you, um, since this is uh, Reformation Month, um, I'm trying to give you some resources to maybe help you think through some things that will be helpful to understand some, uh, some aspects about the Re- Reformation. Uh, last week, if you remember, uh, we emphasized the five solas, and um, they're, they're in the bulletin for you, but you can go online and you can download the document that I put together. The five solas basically art- articulate um, what the Reformation was about, some heart issues, some heart doctrines. But, but there is something that kind of was happening before all that um, that took place at what was called the Synod of Dort. And you guys may recognize the name Joseph Ar- Arminius. Um, Joseph Arminius basically had some doctrine that was really, really bad. And the church, um, seeking to clarify, had a council and in that council came up with five responses to the bad theology. Today, they're known as the doctrines of grace. And oftentimes, they're what's associated with Calvinism. And a lot of people think, well, you know, how can you just follow the teachings of one man? No, Calvin really didn't have anything to do with coming up with these, these doctrines necessarily. It was the church uh, responding to the bad teaching. So there's a, there's a document uh, that, that I've made available to you called Tulip and the Doctrines of Grace. And, of course, the tulip uh, was used as an acrostic. And Dort, of course, is, you know, that, the whole area was the, the Dutch territory. And let me just highlight what they, what they are. You can read through yourself. But total depravity, and just simply speaking, it, it doesn't mean that you're going to go do the worst thing. It means that no matter what you do, it's always tainted by sin because we have sin throughout us. I mean, even the good things we do, um, we struggle in our sinfulness when we do them, all right? So we are totally depraved throughout. That's the idea of that. Unconditional election. Interesting enough, last night I had a question. So um, is it God that you know, elects people to be saved, or do people choose? And um, it was a, an opportunity to say, well, if you read Scripture, you hear that God says, guess what? I chose you before the foundation of the world, chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. You can't run away from that. But the thing is, I don't, I'm not God. I don't know how that all works out specifically. I just know that he does it. But from my perspective, I'm wrestling and thinking through and finally coming to faith in him, and I'm exercising faith in him. And so Tulip basically, or the unconditional election, means that God is the one who is electing, who's drawing people to himself um, unconditionally. Uh, definite atonement, um, which would be the, the, the L, we limited atonement. The article here has chosen to use definite atonement. In other words, Christ ultimately, when it comes down to it, um, his, his death is sufficient for all who would believe. Uh, Christ doesn't spill unnecessary blood. That's the idea behind it. So um, anyway, you can read through that a little bit more. And then effectual calling. When God calls someone, they're going to come. And um, you can, you know, bang your head as much as you want because you want someone to be saved. But unless the Lord is drawing them, they're not going to come. Now, you still bang your head (laughs) because you don't know when to stop banging your head. But it's the Lord that does it, right? And you probably know from your own experience that's true, right? And then 
the perseverance of the saints. In other words, um, that, that when God calls people to himself, um, they will continue to be believers. They don't lose that reality of their salvation. Anyway, read the document. It helps you understand at least some of the framework and foundations of what we're leading up to the Reformation. These doctrines are really important, and you need to, you need to not be drawn away by faulty thinking about these doctrines, because there's a lot of bad stuff out there. Learn the beauty of them and, and understand them in balance and, and seek to understand that. And if you want to talk more about that, we can, but I want you to at least be aware of that. Well, this morning, we're in the book of Exodus again. Um, nothing is really changing except that we're outside. Are you with me there? So um, understand, you might get hot. Um, some of you um, this morning, I will have had an effect on um, because you're going to go home with a little bit more sh- glow, if you want to put it that way, all right? Um, so hopefully you've come prepared with hats and things like that, but we want to make sure that the Word of God is central and that we take time with it. Well, let me ask you to stand one more time, if you're able to, um, and we're going to stand and we're going to read God's Word together. Uh, Before we do that, I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you to all those people that have been working hard behind the scenes. Um, Some of the names are listed in the bulletin, and I can't remember, but Alex and Alexi and Tim and Alex Lopes um, and Stephanie and, and Tim, we we got the the opportunity on Saturday, just like, yeah, you know, we were welcome to come here. Pastor Hines was so gracious in allowing us to come, and we had to kind of mobilize on Tuesday night. We met, and we just said, can we do this? And like, yeah, we can do this. We need to do this, this, this. And so this, the team basically just said, let us add it, and um, it's not me. I'm just, I'm just the, the guy up here ministering the word. Those people have done all the legwork, and then many of you came and helped and, and supported. I just want to, I just want to just properly, as your pastor, just say, well done, church. Um, this, absolutely, really. Um, and and I'm, I'm not saying this in, an, you know, in kind of just, you know, kind of stroking you. I think, I think you need to be, uh, be mindful of the fact that um, this happened quickly and this happened with great skill, and we praise God for what he's doing, okay? So it's just so good, so good to be here with you. Well, Exodus 19, verses 16 through 25. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down to Mount Sinai, to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, to look look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to the mountain sign or Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down 
and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is living, it is breathing, and it is for us today in this context. And Lord, I ask that our attention, even though we're outside, will be on your truth, that you would allow me as your messenger to be faithful to your text. Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And Lord, again, allow me to be your mouthpiece today, that you would be seen in all your glory and that we as your people would be in awe and be changed as a result of it. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, one of the things, of course, happened yesterday was I performed a wedding. It was a wonderful wedding, a backyard wedding, um, uh, sweet. Uh, it It was warm. The fellowship was great. And the, the celebration and the ceremony just went really, really well. And it got me thinking about my wedding day. Not that I had much to do with my wedding day. I basically flew in, and then the next couple of days I was around, and then the wedding happened. But for my wedding, there was a lot of work that went into it um, in planning the wedding. And, of course, I was in Buffalo, New York at the time, so I really didn't have much to do with it. I just chose what I was going to wear, and my wife, Elia, when I married, um, and uh, her family, they did all the work, right? I basically showed up. But, you know, they had to find the right church facility that would suit the wedding and the amount of people they were going to have. All the, the details needed to be arranged with the bridesmaids and the groomsmen and getting the colors and getting all things ordered. Um, trying to figure out who was actually going to be coming to the wedding and um, what things needed to be set up. Uh, arranging for hotels for people coming in from out of town picking people up from the airport and getting them to where they needed to be. All these details are happening. You know what I'm talking about. If you've been married, and in particular if you are the, uh, the bride who's now married, you know there's a lot of stuff that happens in preparation. Then on Friday night, we gathered for the dress rehearsal. We enjoyed a nice meal together, and then the ladies went off to someone's home for uh, their thing, and then the men, me and the guys, we went out to someone else's place to have some time of fun and fellowship together. And then I returned to the home that I was staying at until the actual wedding day. And everything had gone well, had been prepared. The people had arrived from out of town, tuxedos were all picked up, shoes were shined. Now it was time to rest. And then I woke up that Saturday morning, and it hit me. It hit me that in just a few hours, I would be standing before my bride. The truth is that all the days leading up to that day were just preparation. And you know what it's like when you're preparing. You always feel like, oh, I have a little bit of time. I got this. It's, it's not there yet. But when you wake up on the day, it's like, this is the day. This is when it's going to happen. So reality set in. Preparation time was over. Today I was going to meet with my beautiful bride and seal our wedding covenant. No more waiting. No more preparing. And friends, here in our text, God has been preparing Israel for this very special day. 
Now, it's not a wedding, of course, but it's the day that they will meet with God. There had been some anticipation. He had told them through Moses that he had remembered their covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had told them through Moses that he had heard their cries for rescue. He had promised that he would deliver them from their bondage in Egypt. And when that happened, that they would go out into the wilderness and they would meet with him. He had delivered them. He brought plagues. He brought them through the Red Sea. He defeated Pharaoh and his armies. He had tested them for seven weeks with with lack of water and lack of food and the armies that came up against them. And he showed them that they were not sufficient to care for themselves, that they needed him. And they ultimately knew that he was a God that they could count on. Now, in chapter 19, God speaks to them again through Moses, and he establishes a covenant with them that they would obey his voice and keep his commandment or his covenant, and that, and that they were three things, a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And this is, this is where we have been. And then he says... to to let them know that I am coming to meet with them. But in order for that to take place, they must be consecrated. They must be ready on the third day. And, of course, that consecration involved three things. Cleansing, which is the washing of clothes, symbolizing that inward spiritual uh, uh, cleansing. Reflecting two days to consider who this God is and prepare in their mind and their heart. Fencing, where they had to set limits around the mountains so that they would not go into it. And ultimately, um, we have Moses who offered up a sacrifice as a consecration for the people. Now, friends, that's all preparation. They hadn't met with God yet. Now, he'd been around. He was there as the, the cloud and the fire. He'd been you know, there, but they really had not met him in the way that he was intending to meet with them on this special day. All of this stuff was leading up to this special day, a day when they will be able to behold their God. And our text begins with these words. On the morning of the third day. God wasn't waiting around that morning. They were to be ready. And just like me getting up on the day of my wedding and realizing that all the preparations are over and this would be the day when I would meet my bride, so the people of Israel got up in the morning of the third day knowing that something very special was going to happen, that they were going to meet with God. Just just ponder that thought, friends. Ponder the the significance and the power of what was about to take place. They may have thought they knew God. And, of course, that's the theme of the book of Exodus, isn't it? And he had prepared them for this encounter. But the reality is they had no idea what they were about to experience. And so this morning, what we have in our text is a call for God's people to embrace the dangerous privilege of meeting with God. It's a call to embrace the dangerous privilege of meeting with God. Meeting with God, friends, is dangerous. He's a holy God and we are not. He's a magnificent God and we are not. He is king and we are not. But meeting with God is also a privilege. It's a privilege that we don't deserve. It's a privilege that we cannot pursue on our own. Listen, 
man with all his technology can, can get to the moon, but by himself he cannot commune with God except that God reaches down and communes with them. It's a privilege to have this relationship with him. It's a privilege that benefits us through his gospel. So friends, the question for us this morning is as we begin is this, do you know God today? Is, it is a privilege to know God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it's a dangerous thing. And oftentimes we, we talk about God being our friend, our savior, and Jesus being our sacrifice, but when God is all those things, he's not diminished. He's still God fully and completely. We may look for a long, uh, and long for his love and his care and his understanding, but we must be reminded that God is still holy. He's still the king of kings and lord of lords. He's still the God who exercises just judgment. He's still to be feared. Now, it took me a long time to figure it out, but there is a very powerful structure to these 10 verses. And I would like to draw your attention to verse 20 in particular, and I want you to see that as you read verse 20, it reveals for us the structure of these verses. Let's read it. It says, The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now, I think you will agree with me when I say that this verse is telling us that something is going to take place where? On the top of the mountain. Right? I mean, it's right there for us, isn't it? So the first part of the, the verse tells us that God uh, will come down to the top of the mountain. The second part of the verse tells us that God calls Moses to the top of the mountain. Right? So you have God coming down, right? And you have Moses coming up. That was divine providence, of course. We know that, right? So in verses 16 through 19, get this, what we see there is that the Lord comes down and he is fully and completely on display. In fact, this is one of the the fullest uh, theophanies, appearances of God that we have in Scripture. So in verses 16 through 19, the Lord comes down. In verses 20 to 25, we see that Moses, God's mediator, is called up, and God warns. So he demands, and he warns. And once again, we're confronted with God's transcendence. Remember that that word that means that that God is separate from us? But we are also reminded of his imminence, uh, imminence, that God seeks to interact with his creation. Holy, magnificent, creator, sovereign God desires to come and commune with us, with his people. Don't don't let that stop amazing you. When you pick up your Bible and you open it and you read it, be amazed that God is speaking to you through his word. It's not just a document. It's not just a a, a collection of, of books that man has put together. What nonsense that is. This is God breathing out his word and communing with his people through his word. So let's jump in now. Point number one, the Lord comes down. The Lord comes down. Let's read the first section again. 
On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and every, uh, sorry, a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. So here's what we see first. First of all, we see the display of the Lord's magnificence. Now, when I read this passage, I don't know why, but I could not get out of my mind um, your typical modern-day main event boxing match. I'm thinking Floyd Mayweather. I'm thinking Tyson Fury. And what happens, right? Here, the, the, the fight is about to begin, and you, you look up the ramp, and all the lights are kind of flowing all over the place. And then the fighter stands out. There's all this music that's blaring. There's smoke that's rising. And they're dancing their way to the ring. They are coming down. Why? Because they think that they're the king. Isn't that what happens today? I remember once seeing one boxer who was so full of himself, who had made a similar grand entrance, and he finally makes it into, uh, toward the ring, and he, he steps over the ropes and falls flat on his face. It was so wonderful. I mean, they could have just stopped the whole thing there, right? Arrogance brought down. It was a wonderful, wonderful thing. Now, I, I share that not to make light of what we've read here, but to ask this question. Where do you think they got the idea of having a grand entrance from? What do you think might have shaped their thinking? Now, it's quite normal for a king when he planned on visiting a city and a kingdom to send news of his coming so that the people could prepare. And when he would arrive there, he would put on a show. Now, just think about the movie Aladdin, right? Make way for Prince Ali, boom, 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 right? I mean, that's the, the, the prince, this, this, this king is coming. Except what we have here is no prince. It is God himself coming in his full glory. So the display here is of God's magnificence. Now, let's just take a moment and highlight the many powerful and, and, and phenomenal events taking place in our text when the Lord comes. Thunders, lightning, thick cloud, trumpet blast, smoke, fire, a trumpet that is going louder and louder, thunder. Now, it's no wonder the Israelites were overwhelmed with fear. I mean, first of all, we can say this. The mountain looked terrifying, didn't it? It was covered in a dark, mysterious cloud. Lightning cracked over its peaks. The rocks were white hot with fire belching smoke to the heavens. So it looked terrifying. It sounded terrifying. Apart from the noise of the lightning, the fire, and the belching rocks, there was the noise of the trumpet probably a giant shofar that was, that was making noise. And its noise grew steadily louder and louder as the Lord came closer and closer. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Not only that, the mountain felt terrifying. 
smoke and fire along with the sound and then the shaking of the ground underneath. All of this made for the most amazing and daunting mountaintop experience. But what's missing here? What's missing in this text? What's missing is that the people actually never see God. They only see and hear and feel the presence of God. We can rightly say they experienced the presence of God, but they did not see him. Now, what do you think about, or what do you visualize when you think about God? We tend to view God as an old man with a long long gray hair and, and a long beard reaching down to mankind. And of course, our, that image is shaped by much of the classical artists like Michelangelo. That's how we view him. In our mind, we think about God. That's the kind of image that we think of. But friends, there was none of that going on here. A little later in the book of Exodus, God speaks to Moses and says this. This is chapter 33 and verse 20. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So they don't see a man, because God is not a man. He is a spirit, and he is invisible. But he condescends. In other words, he comes down to our level at times of his own choosing and in ways that, uh, that will not destroy us. Now, what Moses and the people of Israel see here are the manifestations of the glory of God. They are magnificent. They are glorious. They are powerful. They are majestic. And they are manifestations that we can grasp. We are created beings, and we are limited in our capacity, but we can understand all of these things that we've just talked about this morning. God is still transcendent, separated by his holiness from his creation, the purity of his holiness and being would kill us instantly if we were to see it. So he comes to meet his people in a way that they can experience him and know that he is the great I am. He hides himself behind the thick cloud. He is making himself known all the while masking his full presence. It's an incredible picture, isn't it? It's an amazing picture. God is present, but we can't see him. So that's the display of the Lord's magnificence. Now uh, we, need to, we need to consider the response to the Lord's magnificence. The response to the Lord's magnificence. First of all, the people trembled. Notice at the beginning of the text here, we find them still in their camp. And the people of Israel in their camp see the lightnings and the thick cloud. They hear the thunder and, and the trumpet blast, and they, what? They tremble. And this is natural. This is expected. We wouldn't expect sinful humans to be comfortable in the presence of God, would we? The book of Hebrews tells us this. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Chapter 10, verse 31. Franklin Delano Roosevelt said, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Well, that's exactly what the Israelites had, fear itself. 
They're afraid because they're in the very presence of the transcendent God in all his glory. And then Moses takes them from their camp to the foot of the mountain. And they see the mountain wrapped in smoke and the fire like a kiln. You can see how this text is moving the characters from outside in. God coming down, Israel coming near, but only to the foot of the mountain. If we look ahead at chapter 20, this is after the Lord gives the Ten Commandments. I want you to notice what verses 18 and 19 say. When, uh, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us. And we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. <laughs> I mean, it was rough listening to the word of God through Moses, but when God speaks, uh, we can't handle that. We're too afraid of that. See, they, they're taking all of this in. They are trembling in the presence of God. Secondly, not only the people tremble, but Moses trembled. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 21, this is what we find. This is the writer of Hebrews reflecting back to this story. It says, Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now, you have to think about this. The children of Israel were in the camp and they were trembling. They go to the foot of the mountain and they're trembling. But where does Moses have to go? Moses has to climb the mountain, and he has to go up and meet God face to face. I would be trembling. So it's not surprising that the writer of Hebrews identifies that. I wonder, do you tremble in the presence of God? When you hear a sermon or you open the Word, and there's something there that is speaking of God's magnificence and His holiness is there a part of you that still trembles? Or do you just kind of brush it aside and just say, oh, that's really cool about the character of God. I think God still wants us to tremble. I think God still wants us to be respectful of his awe and his majesty and certainly bow down and worship. But there's a part of us that should be rightfully, respectfully trembling, but also thankful to be privileged, to be brought in. So the people tremble, Moses trembles, but notice what happens in verse 18. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of the kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. In the Gospels, when the multitude of those following Jesus are saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, some of the Pharisees say to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these people were silent, the very stones would cry out. I mean, this is just a reflection of what happens here in chapter 19 of the book of Exodus. Friends, it is the mountain that cries out revealing God's presence. It's the rocks that cry out when everyone is silent. The psalmist says it this way. This is Psalm 68, 7 and 8. Oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked and the heavens poured down rain before God, the, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. 
Psalm 114, verse 7, Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. So friends, Israel was not invited to climb up the mountain. That was only for Moses. But they could draw near, but not too near. They could draw close, but not too close. Now, what does all of this teach us? What can we learn from what we've just seen so far? I have two things I just want to draw our attention to from this first section. First of all, that God is magnificent in his glory. God is magnificent in his glory. Each of these natural phenomenon point to a different aspect of the character of God. They highlight something different about his attributes, about his being. So here we see that the thunder and the earthquake, they're signs of his power. Now, I know we're in California, and we don't experience thunderstorms that much. I think last year we had one, and everyone's like, wow, this is incredible. But if you live in the Midwest, it's just like, you know, oh, thunderstorm. Let's go out on the porch. Let's enjoy this thing. But that's, the point here is if you're not used to and there are thunderstorms that are really, really bad, you actually look to find safety and shelter, right? Now, we understand the next one. When there's an earthquake, re- the reality is for us, we really don't have much time to respond, right? Find a desk, get under it, right? But by the time you find the desk and get under it, it's, the thing's passed, unless it's one of those ones that last like 13 seconds, and then we're all dead, right? Um, but you understand that the, the weight here, these thunders and earthquakes are, are referring to his power. Secondly, the dark cloud is referring to uh, the, the, the mysterious nature of God's presence. There are realities about his being that we cannot comprehend. A number of years back, my brother came out for my daughter's graduation, and one of the things that he wanted to do, like anyone here for the first time wants to do, is we want to go see what? The Golden Gate Bridge, right? So about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, it's a beautiful day like today. we like, let's head out, go to the Golden Gate Bridge. Of course, I, I usually go back to, to one kind of like where Pacifica is and drive down and finally get to Ocean Beach and then kind of come back to the, to, the, to, the, to the bridge. That's how I usually go. By the time we got to the Golden Gate Bridge, the vista point on the San Francisco side, there was so much fog that even standing at the vista point, you could not see the bridge. We spent more time looking at the displays of the cables of the bridge than we did actually of the bridge because you couldn't see it. The fog was so thick, and it had this mysterious nature. So I had to tell them there really is a bridge there. Um, It does exist, but I know you can't see it. Here's the evidence of it. So here we have this dark cloud that is this mysterious cloud that is, uh, you know, a reminder of God's presence. Third, there's fire. And fire reflects the the purity and holiness of God, and that, that brings about his just judgment. It's an incredible scene, isn't it? Do you remember the last time that God manifested himself to his people like this in the books of Moses? It's actually in Genesis 19 and verse 28. At Sodom and Gomorrah, where he made himself known in the form of fire and smoke and of a great furnace. Let me read that passage. Genesis 19, 28. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like a smoke of a furnace. See, judgment is an outflow of God's holiness. 
So there's fire. And then finally you have this trumpet. And it signifies the sovereign king is coming. And the closer that he gets, the louder the trumpets are blasting. So this section is is revealing for us the magnificence of God in all his glory. He is fully and completely on display for us finite men to comprehend. We can't take any more of this. If we were there, we would not be able to take any more of this. God is revealing as much as he can in this context about who he is. And friends, the purpose of the display was twofold. To prepare the people for the sermon that God is going to deliver with his own lips, right, which is going to be the next few chapters, and to remind the people exactly what it is that, or who it is that will be preaching. Matthew Henry says this, Never was there a sermon preached before or since as this, which was preached here to the church in the wilderness. God himself was the preacher. His pulpit, or rather his throne, was Mount Sinai. And of course, as we flash forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we hear him preach a great sermon in Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7 from the side of a mountain. And that sermon will shake and shape all the people who would hear it for the rest of eternity. Of course, we know that as the Sermon on the Mount. So God and his, all his magnificence is important for us to see. Secondly, um, his magnificence isn't just for the Old Testament. His magnificence remains true today. And sometimes we want to distinguish this God of the Old Testament with the, the gentle, warm, meek God of the New Testament. No, he, he is just as mighty in the New Testament. So friends, it's important for us to say um, that not much has changed. God is still sovereign. He's still powerful. He is still present. He, he is a God who still exercises judgment and justice on mankind. The prophet Isaiah had the privilege of seeing God in, in his throne room. It says there in Isaiah 6-4, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. He understood how dangerous it was to stand before God. And so he says, woe is me, I am undone, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I stand among a people of unclean lips. The apostle John saw something similar in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verse 5. From the throne came flashes and lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And then in verse 8, it says this, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. John understands the great privilege he has in seeing God in this way. But he's also very aware of how daunting and dangerous God is. Job understood the magnificence of God when he says in chapter 42, verses 5 and 6, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The privilege of seeing, but the danger and the daunting nature of seeing. The reality is, friends, as we come to know God better, 
His holiness will shine brighter and we will become more fully aware of our own sinfulness. Let me say that again. As we come to know God better, his holiness will shine brighter and we will become more fully aware of our own sinfulness. And the result will either be hardening of our hearts or bowing our heads in repentance. So we're called to embrace what the writer of Hebrews understands so well when he quotes the words of Moses, our God is a consuming fire. Now, friends, this is a message that we all need to hear, especially in a time when we're living in a country that is becoming more and more like Sodom and Gomorrah, where basic morality and values are rooted in the, and flow out of the, the Judeo-Christian ethic are now seen as immoral, <laughs> divisive, and shameful where truth is suppressed and the lie is celebrated, where evil is called good and good is called evil, let's remember that God, the God that is revealed in this text, is still seated securely on his throne. And he's calling us to live our lives in light of who he is and what he has done on our behalf. Friends, get this. No matter what happens in November, God is still seated on his throne. Nothing's shaking him. And our, our anchor, our, our, our faith should be there. So let's not be guilty of shrinking back from the world and its thinking as if the world is to be feared and it is daunting, although it is daunting. Let us be guilty of being shaken by the mighty magnificence of God who is fully present, all-powerful, totally sovereign, preparing a day when each person will be judged. And the great question won't be, what good deeds did you perform, but did you embrace my son, Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior? Friends, that's the front end of this text. The Lord has come down, and he's on display. <laughs> it's an incredible picture, isn't it? But now we find the mediator is called up. The mediator is called up, and what we have here is a warning Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord and, and, and look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up the mountain. For you yourself warned us saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, and he broke out against, uh, or um, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And the emphasis here is, is not, so, not so much in the instructions as it is, first of all, in the fact that Moses is functioning as a mediator. And last week we emphasized that mediatorial role. Francis Schaeffer, um, Family She Said About God, it's the title of one of his books, um, but he says this, he is there and he is not silent. And you could say the first section of this passage is, he is there. <laughs> but get this, he is not silent. And so the first of the three lessons I want to give you from this section is this, that we, we are moved to have a new respect for the word of God. God speaks. Now I know that he's already interacted with Moses 
But the emphasis here is that the people now are seeing God speaking with Moses. They don't hear what God is saying, but when God speaks to Moses, it sounds like what? Thunder. So they know Moses is up there and he's talking to God, but when God speaks, thunder. Moses understands what God is saying. The people just know that God is speaking. So God speaks. It's a sound of thunder. Can you imagine how the Israelites would have responded if Moses, um, or to Moses, if God had not displayed his glory on Mount Sinai? Moses would have gone up the mountain and come down again with the law. But how would the people know for certain that it was God's law, not Moses' law? There are some people today who, who want to make a distinction between God and his word. And we, and we see this and we hear this in our culture today. They, they want to say, I follow God, but I don't follow that Bible. Or, I'm a Christian, but I read the Bible a little different than most people in the church do. They want to distinguish themselves from what God has revealed, right? And God is saying to all of us, you cannot make that distinction. When I speak my word through Moses, through Elijah, through Isaiah, through Jeremiah, through Jesus, through Paul, through Peter, through John, it's just as if I had spoken to you with my own lips. Moses is speaking with authority because he is speaking the very words of God. They're not just Moses' words. What does Moses have to say? Now, I understand this as a pastor. What do I have to give you? You don't want to hear from Rod Phillips. You want to hear from God. And my job is not to give you my thoughts and ideas. It's my job to say, thus says the Lord. Now, friends, this is how Jesus understands the Old Testament, isn't it? Luke 24. He re refers to the two on the road to Emmaus by, by saying, look, what, what, is the, what, are the, what does Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets reveal about me? Jesus is saying, look, the scriptures are pointing to me. That's how the apostles understand the Old Testament. They go about uh, through the book of Acts preaching the gospel from uh, the scriptures. And those scriptures are not the New Testament. Those scriptures are the Old Testament. So what was written in Exodus is the very word of God. And this is true not simply for the writings of Moses, but for everything written on every page of the Bible. It all comes from God. And this is what the scriptures teach. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when Moses speaks, he's speaking God's word to the people. Now, friends, that's a daunting thing, isn't it? but it's a privilege for the people who are receiving it. That's why Paul is so passionate in telling Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And immediately after that, what does he do? He charges Timothy to be preaching that word because it is the very word of God. I charge you in the presence of God, and of Christ, who was the judge, the living and the dead, and by his appearing in kingdom, preach 
the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. And to be under that is a dangerous thing, and it's a privilege. And friends, every time you come and gather with your family and you place yourself under the word of God, guess what? Part of you should be saying, I don't want to be here. <laughs> because I know God's going to say something that's going to be dangerous. And part of you is also saying, oh, what a privilege it is to have the word of God. There's this wrestling match, right? Man, God's going to have something to say that, that I'm going to have to deal with. And he's also going to have something to say that's going to be an encouragement and a help to me. Both those realities are true. Secondly here, the lesson is not only a new respect for the word of God, but a new respect for the holiness of God. See, God is here in all his glory, and he is not silent. And he speaks to us through his word with full and sovereign authority. To that end, we need to be very careful how we approach him. And in this context, we're confronted repeatedly with the reality that we cannot barge into God's presence. God had Moses set limits around the mountain and to warn the people not to come up to the mountain or to touch it. But what may be surprising is that God found it necessary to repeat his earlier warnings. In fact, three times he repeats this warning for the people not to come up and the priests not to come up unless they're consecrated. So God warns, if you break through, I will break out against you. If the priests break through, I will break out against them. God is a holy God. And, and the reality is, friends, if we understand the context of what's going on here, God is revealing himself in all of his glory, but we have not yet fully seen God. And if God is dwelling on this mountain because it is a tabernacle now, his presence is something that man cannot endure unless that man has been consecrated and welcomed by God up. So it's not just about, oh, God's always about making rules and setting limits and all that kind of stuff. He won't let me do anything. There's a reason for that. It's because God is holy. And you break into his holiness, and, and there is going to be suffering. So once again, God determines that there's a need here to repeat himself. And Moses here seemingly challenges God and reminds him that he's already spoken to the people about it. In other words, look, I, God, I already told them. Now, if you have kids, or you just interact with people in general, you know that sometimes telling them once is not sufficient, right? God understands what we're like, and he knows that we need repetition to make sure that we will get it, right? And so he, he repeats himself, and he knows that we're quick to forget. He knows that we need to be reminded. He knows what we are like. So, friends, this repeated warning for Israel is, is to... Keep, to keep a distance is a sober reminder that God is dangerous. He is majestic and transcendent. He burns with bright, blazing holiness. Therefore, it's a, it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now, let's move on then from this new respect for the word of God, this new respect for the holiness of God. And I'm going to finish up here with the text with this new respect for God's grace. Last week, we laid the foundation that the only way we can truly meet with God is through a God-appointed 
mediator. And in our text, it is Moses that is the mediator, right? And he speaks both for God and for the people, but we realize that he's an imperfect mediator. But if we turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, and verses 18 through 24, which we did last week, we find the writer of Hebrews compares the mediatorial role of Moses to Christ, and it's Jesus who is now our mediator, and, and, and he's the one who, who bridges the gap between God's holiness and our unworthiness because he is the perfect mediator. So in verses, verse 24 of Hebrews 12, this is what we're told. We come to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood. Friends, that is grace. We don't deserve to have a mediator. We don't deserve to have a sacrifice paid for us by Christ. As a result, we are truly free, free from the bondage of sin, free, from, free to worship Yahweh, the great I am, free to love one another and our neighbors, free to come boldly to the throne of grace, free to live our lives for his glory. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 says this, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Friends, in light of what we've seen in this passage, we who are God's children, who, we who are truly God's children, are called to embrace the dangerous privilege of meeting with God. In the words of John Newton, the song that we sang this morning just hear how it relates to our text. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us in his blood. He has brought us nigh, which means near, to God. See, this is what Christ has done. You see, Israel Israel was stuck in the camp, and then they were stuck at the bottom of the mountain. Now we can come boldly to the throne of grace because of what Christ has done. It goes on in the song, let us wonder grace and justice, join and point to mercy's store. When through grace uh, in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. We're washed, uh, he has washed us with his blood, he secured our way to God. Friends, there's such benefit and blessing that's happening because Christ is our mediator. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Now, I want to bring all this together here with just a couple of concluding thoughts, actually three briefly, three concluding thoughts. First of all, these are all things that flow out of this text that are ways that we can now meet with God. Consider First of all, that we are called to know God. We're called to know God. That's the theme of Exodus. And as we've said many times, that we might know him or that God is making himself known. Do we see all the ways that God is at work in our lives seeking to make himself known? And one of the ways he makes himself known is in the pages of his word. Now, friends, hear this. I know a pastor's role is to say to you, open up your Bible, <laughs> read your Bible, spend time in the Word of God. It's like, okay, that's just what pastors say, right? This is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to read the Bible. Look, it's not just because you're supposed to do it. 
I'm not encouraging you to read your Bible simply because it's some academic exercise or somehow to nurture you toward legalism. No, it's because in the study of God's word, God makes himself known. So the more you marinate in God's word because you're taking time to study God's word, the more the flavor of God and his attributes get into your being. So you just take time to, to just to, to, to nestle in with God's word, with his text. It will have its way with you. You're marinating in it, and that wonderful flavor of God starts to permeate into you. It's not just that you have to do it because I'm telling you, oh, you're missing out if you're not doing it. And you're missing out on who God is and what he wants to be to you. And sometimes our, our legalistic minds get in the way of the beauty and the wonder of coming to meet him in the pages of his word. Secondly, we're called to acknowledge God. I think one of the, the often neglected sections of scripture that we often quote is Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. We, all, we got that one. But then what does it say? In all your ways... Acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. So to acknowledge God is to see him at work in every area in your life and to praise him for it. Look, he delivered Israel. He tested Israel. He provided for Israel. He displayed himself to Israel. These are all the ways that Israel can acknowledge God. How is God doing those things in your life? Do you attribute his hand of provision in the little things or just in the big things when he comes through for you? And friends, sometimes we need to pause and we need to praise him for the little things that he does and the ways that he is at work and acknowledge, you know, don't just say, well, hey, you know, wasn't it great? I happened to get this thing on sale. And I realize you don't need to stomp around coal saying, God gave me this coupon. God gave me this coupon. I get that. But you know what? At the end of the day, you sit back and you say, you know what? All of these things happen because I have a sovereign God who's working his will in my life, and I want to give him praise because he is the one who is accomplishing these things. In all your ways, acknowledge him. See, well, how does that interact with me meeting with him? Because you realize in the course of your day as you're interacting and doing things that God's at work. The reason this person stopped and talked to you is because God's at work. You're acknowledging him in those conversations and the events and activities that are taking place. So to meet with God is to acknowledge him for who he is and what he is doing in your life. So we're called to know him. We're called to acknowledge him. But we're also called to experience God. You're like, Pastor, I just lost you now. Now you're going charismatic on me, right? No, experience should not be out of our vocabulary. Now please hear this, friends. If you're looking for a mountaintop experience with God, you don't need a mountain. You need Christ. Let me say that again. If you're looking for a mountaintop experience with God, you don't need a mountain. You don't have to go looking all over the place for this experience. You just need to pick up the Bible and start seeing Christ and experiencing what it means to walk in Him. It's not the experience of it that's the point. It's the interaction and the meeting with God that's the point, right? So to experience Christ, we need to do what the Apostle Paul says. Know that you are united with Christ, then walk in a manner worthy of him. That's to experience him. 
Walking in the Spirit is not walking somehow mystically and saying, oh, the Spirit told me something. No, walking in the Spirit is walking in obedience out of what God has already revealed uh, uh, in His Word. It is being faithful. It's, it's being obedient. It's taking His truth and living it out. So it is to live and breathe the Word of God and to walk through your daily routine seeking to live your life in a way that pleases Him. But it's also to live with a reverential fear of God. And friends, that's a good thing. Trembling because you've taken time to know God and acknowledge God is a good thing. And it means the word of God is getting in. And, and, and who God is and what he says matters. You're in awe of who he is and you are being warned about what he says. I want to finish up just by quoting one little verse. It's chapter 15 of the book of Exodus. And this is what they have already sung, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Behold your God. He is amazingly on display in this text. And because of that, he fuels you to live in a way that responds to that wonderful, glorious display of who he is. Lord, help us now as we contemplate who you are. Oh, Lord, thank you for Exodus chapter 19. In our hearts, we, we may have naturally wanted to get to Exodus 20. But Lord, we cannot understand 20 without 19. You have made a covenant with your people. You've prepared them from your, for your coming. And Lord, you have come. And you have come in all your glory. You have displayed yourself to your people. And Lord, even today, you are on display. You brought your son, Jesus Christ, who now gave a, a man an opportunity to see God in the flesh but Lord, you are still that magnificent God. You are still uh, one that deserves our worship and praise. You're still the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lord, may we not lose sight of that when we're watching TV or flipping through our, our apps and watching the news and worried about what's happening in our country. Lord, you are our awesome God, full in glory. And Lord, you are transcendent. You're above everything because you've created it all. And in the midst of all of that, Lord, you have singled individuals out. You've drawn them to yourself. You've breathed life into their souls. And you've called them to live in a way that is guided by your word and your truth. And, Lord, that is what you've done with us. So, Lord, help us to live our lives for your glory. This day and every day, steadily, slowly growing in our walk with you. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen.